St. Ignatius, do you know that name? Uh, St. Ignatius was a Spanish nobleman turned military soldier, became one of the most significant voices in all of Christian history. He's got a fascinating story. I'd love to tell you a little bit about it, maybe in a few minutes. But he also has this great line. I love this line. God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. Isn't that a great line? Anybody feel like a crooked stick? Hoping maybe against hope that God might just maybe draw a straight line with your life? Here's another one-liner for you. This is from my college pastor back in the 1990s. Hope is to hear the music of the future. Faith is to dance to it. I'm pretty sure he was borrowing from a Brazilian theologian, but I didn't care then. I just wanted to hear the music. I just wanted to dance. And maybe by the end of the morning, or whenever time it is you're dialing into this, maybe you'll want to dance too. Now we're beginning today a five-week series of sermons I'm calling There's No Way. There's just no way, because I hear it so often from so many people. There's no way. There's no way this polarized cultural moment will ever give way to the common good. There's no way the ache in my heart will ever give way to a brighter future. There's no way the broken relationship in my life will ever mend itself towards reconciliation. There's no way. I don't know if you've ever caught yourself saying there's no way. This might be a sermon series for you if you have. Uh, We're going to listen to stories, gather our hearts around stories from the Bible of people for whom it seemed like there was no way. Uh, We'll begin in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Those who bless you, I will bless. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abram went, as God told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left the land of Haran. Abram took with him his wife, Sarai, and his brother's son, Lot, and the possessions they had gathered and the persons they had acquired, and they set out to the land of Canaan. When they had come to Canaan, Abram passed through that land to Shechem at the Oaks of Mare. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And God said to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar to the Lord because he had appeared to him. And Abram set out to the hill country east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord, and he invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram continued the journey by stages toward the Negev. Now, there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to reside as an alien, for the famine in the land was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife? And they'll kill me and let you live. Say that you're my sister. 
so that it may go well with me and my life will be spared on your account. So she was taken to Pharaoh's house because the Egyptians saw that she was beautiful and the officials of Pharaoh praised her to Pharaoh. And it went well with Abram on on her account. He had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh said, called Abram and said to him, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say this is my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now take her and be gone. And he ordered his men concerning him, and they set him off with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Genesis 12. It's one of those fulcrum moments in all of Scripture. It's, It's a doorway into God's heart for the whole world. Genesis 12. Up until this point, Genesis 1 through 11, you've got the big, the macro creation, the fall, the flood, and all of a sudden it funnels to the micro and the personal, to the circumstantial realities of a man and his wife who can't have any children and they're wandering and they don't know where they're going. This big, huge, sweeping story of God's creation now maneuvers its way through the realities of an individual's life and an individual's family. Uh, There's a couple of things about this story I want you to notice with me. The peculiar choosing and the shocking promise. But first we have to contend with a detail, a fairly uncomfortable detail if you're with me. What do you make of the absolute and utter objectification of Sarai in this story? I mean, it's hard not to notice. You can try to pass it by, but it slaps you right in the face. As Abram was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me and let you live. Say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me, and they'll spare my life on account of yours. What do you make of the absolute objectification of Sarai in the story. And frankly, if we're just being honest, it's not just Genesis 12. There's a whole bunch of stories in the whole Bible, really, but especially the Old Testament where, you're, where, where women are treated like less than, somehow less, less valuable property. They're just useful if they're useful. I suppose you can sort of skip past it and pretend not to notice, or maybe you just embrace some chauvinistic worldview as in God's name, Or maybe you kind of pass over it in hopes for the more inspiring stuff. What do you do with this stuff? Well, this might be helpful. Every time you read the Bible, no matter where you are and what you're reading, you have to ask a simple question. Is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Descriptive, meaning it's simply describing the reality that was, the way it happened. Or prescriptive, meaning it's prescribing for all of us at all times and all places a way to be and a way to live. Is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? To read this story and any other in the Old Testament particularly as if it's prescribing a way to treat women in our cultural moment would be an absolute and colossal misread. 
It emerges out of a cultural context, but it's not meant to make that cultural context normative for all time. It's describing the way it was. And if you need biblical evidence to support my case, try Jesus. Jesus, who raised women to an elevated status in first century Rome and Israel that hadn't been heard of before, and the Gospels too. The entire account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ depends on the testimony of women. So whenever you're reading a Bible passage, you have to ask, is it descriptive or prescriptive? That was a detail we had to contend with. Now a peculiar choosing and a shocking promise. You can't read Genesis 12 and walk away without acknowledging God chooses. The Lord out of nowhere. I mean, no, no real clear indication as to why, just out of nowhere, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. We, we, we walk around our lives in this world thinking we're making the choices. It's pretty much in our control. We basically determine our own future and our own destiny. And, and I'm not trying to take away agency from your life and certainly not responsibility, but at the same time, if you're going to read the Bible with any integrity, you have to acknowledge God seems to act first. God chooses. I, I, I love to tease uh, brides and grooms at their wedding. I don't do it every time, but I love to do it often enough. Uh, a couple weekends ago, I did a wedding. Two Fridays ago, we'll, we'll call the, the groom uh, Blair and we'll call the bride Amy only because I don't have their permission to share the story. Blair and Amy are awesome. They're the kind of people you want to see get married. They're both wonderful and together they're both beautiful. Uh, Blair, when he was in ninth grade, really, really, really wanted to play tennis and he figured his best shot, he figured in his ninth grade mind, his best shot for a vibrant career in tennis was to transfer schools. So that's what he did. And there he met a buddy, we'll call his buddy Ken. Ken and Blair became good friends, like tight friends, the kind of friends you'd like have stand up for you in your wedding. So when Ken, years later, fell in love with Kate, he invite, Ken invited Blair to be in his wedding party. And Kate, coincidentally, had a cousin whose name was Amy. Not, not just like a relative, but like a best friend kind of cousin. So you can imagine Kate invited Amy to be in her wedding party. So there Blair and Amy are in a wedding party at the same wedding, and they meet each other, and Blair kind of thinks Amy's pretty kind of nice, so he musters up the courage and invites her on a date. And he's, a, he's an athlete, so he's thinking, why don't we go play some golf? Maybe I could show off a little bit on my skills. So he takes Amy golfing, and she absolutely whoops him. Blake, Blair, figuring this relationship isn't going to go any farther, but also not wanting to end the relationship, down one, invite her on a second date, this time to play tennis, not realizing Amy was a D1 tennis player, and she whooped him, and they fell in love. And two Fridays ago, I married Blair and Bla Blair, I think is his name, is that his name? Blair and Amy. Did they choose each other? Did Blair choose Amy and Amy choose Blair? Was Blair thinking about marriage in ninth grade when he transferred schools to play tennis? Maybe, maybe, maybe amidst all of our choosing and all of our doing and all of our making our lives, maybe, maybe God, 
Maybe God chooses. Maybe God works his invisible grace in our lives, moving us in ways we could never comprehend and see, but only when we look back do we realize, God, a peculiar choosing. And on top of it, Abram was not grade A. Abram was not a prime cut. Abram was not the TA for the class. Abram was not your elected official. Abram's dad died, brother died. He was supposed to take care of his brother's son. His wife was barren. They were wandering without any indication as to which way they should go. And what's more than that, Abram's dad worshiped idols. He worshiped foreign gods. If his household did it, Abram did it too. And out of nowhere, God chooses Abram. Not because he was worth it, not because he had qualified, not because he was so great, but because God simply chooses. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines, to borrow from St. Ignatius. And that's true of you too. God chooses you before you accomplish yourself, before you're ready, before you're prepared, before you've got yourself all made up and all put together. God chooses you anyway. Isn't that the whole heart of the gospel? God chooses a wandering man and a barren wife to launch his redemption intentions. God uses a virgin mother and an infant child to accomplish salvation. God uses a cross to defeat the power systems of the world. God uses a five-time divorcee, see the woman at the well, to convert a whole village. God uses a demon-possessed prostitute to announce the resurrection of Christ, see Mary Magdalene. God chooses people who otherwise have no business to accomplish his purposes. That's God's heart. You ever feel like a crooked stick? Hoping maybe just maybe God might draw a straight line out of your life? That's the way God is. That's the way God does. That's how God works. God says in a different place in the New Testament, my power is made perfect in your weakness. God chooses Abram, a peculiar choice. We look back and think, our father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father. The God of our ancestors of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We look back to see who Abram was. But before this moment, the Lord said to Abram, Abram was a wandering man without a dad, without a brother, who's without a future. His wife was barren, trying to take care of his nephew, wondering where he should go and not sure how to get there. A crooked stick. And God drew a straight line. A peculiar choosing, now the shocking promise. It's Genesis 12. I don't know if you're following along. Verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, this big macro gospel, creation, fall, flood, finally one day, new creation, this big macro gospel funnels its way through one man, one individual, and through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The choosing is never meant for some elite status, some sort of exclusive club where some are in and some are out. The choosing is not for, it's through. It's through Abram that God would bless the whole world. And as it would happen, down the line of Abram's descendants would be born Jesus Christ, the blessing to the whole world. Jesus, who gathered at a table one night and said, break this bread and drink this cup for the forgiveness of sins for the whole world. It's always meant for all. I like the way 
Leslie Newbegin puts it in a book titled The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, to be chosen, to be elect, does not mean that the elect are saved and the rest are lost. To be elect in Christ Jesus, and there is no other election, means to be incorporated into his mission to the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purposes for his whole world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruits of his blessed kingdom, which is for all. That's God's heart for all, to, to, to move from the, the individual, from the circumstantial realities of one man's life to bless the whole world, and you're in on that. If you feel like Abram, you don't know where to go, and you don't know what your future looks like, and, and you feel like a crooked stick, maybe just maybe God's going to draw a straight line. And if, on the other hand, you've experienced the blessing, and you have the gift, and you seize the opportunity, it's meant to be given away. It's always meant to be given away. That's God's heart. And every once in a while, you come across a person who lives that way. Uh, when we were in Washington, my neighbor was a man named Roy Seth. He was a captain in the Navy. That's like way high. Uh, he also happened to love the Pacific Northwest version of young life. It was called Youth Dynamics at the time. Roy was just a good human being. A uh, couple of months after we moved next door, he was diagnosed with uh, stomach cancer. And they just kept doing surgeries to take sections of his stomach away until there was no stomach left. And so he was given just months to live. I read that book Tuesdays with Maury, so I thought I'd kind of like do a 21st century version of Tuesdays with Maury, and I'd go to his house every Tuesday. And he, would, he was a coffee aficionado. He was such a coffee snob, he would never buy coffee from the store. He had to have his own beans, had to have them roasted. He ground them just so. And he had this fancy Italian coffee machine that he would use to make these amazing lattes. So every Tuesday, I'd go to my neighbor Roy's house, and he'd make me mochas and lattes with latte art. It was incredible. And then just weeks before he died, he called me over to his house on Tuesday and said, I want you to have my Italian stainless steel latte machine. I'm like, wow, Roy. And he said, there's two conditions. One, if you use old beans, I will haunt you. Coming from a dying man, that was a fairly intense caution. And then second, he said, this is not actually for you. You can use it, but it's meant for relationship. I want you to build the kingdom. That's God's heart, not for you, through you, to bless the world. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the shocking promise made to Abram. And the way it's accomplished is as shocking as the promise itself. Here's how it goes. Abram's about to enter Egypt. He says to his wife, Sarai, I know well that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they'll kill me and let you live. Say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me, and my life will be spared on your account. There it is. My life on your account. My life on your account. What does that sound like to you? Where else in the Bible have you heard anything like that? My life on your account. That's the gospel. That's God's heart. That's revealed in Jesus Christ. My life on your account. Could Sarai be a foreshadowing and a prefiguring of Jesus Christ himself? Could Sarai be a Christ figure? 
my life on your account, which is why St. John would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whoever believes my life on your account. This is why Matthew's gospel would say, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. My life on your account. Or St. John catches that beautiful vision of eternity. Worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you were you ransomed for God. Saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. My life on your account. Sarai points us to Jesus. If you've ever heard yourself say, there's no way. There's no way my broken heart will ever mend. There's no way my future will ever turn bright. There's no way this anxiety will ever calm down or this depression will ever be lifted up. There's no way that disease will be healed. There's no way this cultural moment will ever give way to something beautiful. If you've ever heard yourself saying there's no way, listen to this, there's always a way. Jesus is the way. My life on your account. And Abram, having received the promise out of nowhere, the shocking promise out of nowhere. He's wandering. He's not even in Canaan yet. He's somewhere between home country and where he's supposed to be. His wife is barren. His dad is dead. He has to go. He has to take a step. He has to move. That's the question for you. Will you go? Will you, will you step out? You don't know exactly where you're going, but to, but to hold on to what is isn't God's heart for you either. Hope is to hear the music of the future. Faith is to dance to it. Will you dance? So that the world would be blessed. Now, one last word from St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius was the Spanish nobleman, uh, becomes a military soldier, turns into one of the premier spokespeople for the Christian tradition over the last 500 years. Now, St. Ignatius, if we're being honest, he, he, he was a bit of a philanderer. He liked to party. He liked women. He used, he's, it's said that he used to walk around with his military garb, his cape flowing and his tights on and his boots and his dagger and his sword to sort of show off. Well, he was in battle once, and a cannonball ricocheted off a wall and hit him in the right leg, absolutely destroying his leg. So they took him back home to the castle where they did multiple surgeries. This is 1509. Can you imagine? No anesthesia. Just put a stick in his mouth and clench, man. Here we go. They did multiple surgeries on his right leg. He lived but his right leg ended up being significantly shorter than his left leg, so he walked the rest of his life with a massive limp. While he was convalescing in his home, his sister was his caretaker, and he asked if he could have some books, particularly romance novels, because that's what he was into. But his sister, either because she chose not to find any or actually couldn't find any romance novels, brought to him a different book instead, a book titled De Vita Christi, uh, The Life of Christ. And Ignatius, bored out of his mind, read the book. And slowly, as God so often does, slowly and subtly changed Ignatius' heart, and he became a Christian. He was converted to follow Jesus, and he gave his life to Christ. I mean, a disciplined, devoted, even ascetic life. He started schools and seminaries and colleges. He's known to have said to his students, go. Go and set the world on fire. I love that. Go and set the world on fire in you. 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. Amen? Go, pillar. Set the world on fire. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Genesis 12 promises us there's a God. A God who is, a God who acts, a God who meets you wherever you are, with whatever circumstances swirl in your life, to offer you a better day, a better future. So come to the table. If you believe Jesus is Lord and acknowledge him as Savior, you're welcome at this table. If you're not at that place in life or faith, this isn't meant to be awkward or odd. Uh, you're welcome just to consider the things you've heard. Maybe if, if your curiosity is peaked, email me, John, J-O-N, at PillarChurch.com. I'd love to hear more of your story. Come to the table. You have bread and wine, crackers and juice. All things are ready.